0: All right, wrestling with theology fans. This is Pastor Doug Minton, and it is Monday, which means we are standing in the confessional corner. And this week we begin a new article of the Apology, of the Augsburg Confession. This is the second longest article, but we will not be taking as much time in it as we did Article Four, because a lot of things that are said here were also plainly pointed out in Article Four, but. We do have it here for Article 12 on Repentance, which in the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions Reader's Edition, has it divided up into two articles. So we are beginning that part this week, the first 27 paragraphs of the article on what is forgiveness. We begin by reading paragraphs 1 through 3. In Article 12, the adversaries approve of the first part, In which we present this, those who have fallen after baptism may obtain the forgiveness of sins whenever and as often as they are converted. They condemn the second part, in which we say that the parts of repentance are contrition and faith. They deny that faith is the second part of repentance. O Charles, most invincible emperor, what should we do? This is the very voice of the gospel. Through faith we obtain the forgiveness of sins. These writers of the Confutation condemn this voice of the gospel. Therefore, we can in no way agree to the Confutation. We cannot condemn the voice of the gospel. It is beneficial and full of comfort. What else is the denial that we obtain the forgiveness of sins by faith than contempt for Christ's blood and death? We beg you, O Charles, most unconquerable emperor, patiently and diligently hear and examine this most important subject. It contains the chief topic of the gospel, the true knowledge of Christ, and the true worship of God. For all good people will determine that especially on this subject we have taught things that are true, godly, beneficial, and necessary for Christ's whole church. All good people will determine from the writings of our theologians that very much light has been added to the gospel and many deadly errors have been corrected. By these errors, through the opinions of the scholastics and canonists, the doctrine of repentance was previously covered up. Alright, so you see in here, as you will, a couple of times in the Apology, Melanchthon having a plea for Emperor Charles V to come in and be sensible, to understand the common sense gospel of it all. And here is the problem. The whole doctrine of repentance has been taken over and been revamped by the roman church through the scholastics you know the scholarly theologians and the canonists those who write the canon laws so the confutation approved the fact that you can fall away and you can sin after baptism and be converted back again you may repent and receive forgiveness but they deny that faith is part of repentance and we'll see that throughout especially next week as we get into the pure definition of what faith is. So as we move into this, we also want to go back to our article 12 of the confession as it talks about those who we condemn with our teaching. And that is very simple in paragraph 7 of augsburg confession 12 we have the anabaptist let me find it for a second <clears throat> our churches condemn the anabaptist who deny that those who have once been justified can lose the holy spirit they also condemn those who argue that some may reach a state of perfection in this life that they cannot sin all right so we have this idea going around especially with the anabaptist the Forerunners of the Amish and the Mennonites and some other parts of, like, the Baptist traditions that you cannot fall away from grace. That's the idea of once saved, always saved. Yes, it was back in the 16th century as well. In paragraph 9 of the Confession, we have, "...the Novations are also condemned, who would not absolve those who had fallen after baptism, though they returned to repentance." Novation lived between 200 and 258 A.D., so early, first, you know, first half of the third century. And this was the time when there were plenty of persecutions going on in the church, and you had people falling left and right because they wanted to save their lives. And there's all kinds of controversies. Well, Novation said anyone who turned away from the church especially during the Decian persecution of 250 AD could never receive forgiveness they had fallen away, they had committed the unforgivable sin and therefore the church had no need to offer them forgiveness because there was none for them and the reformers say we strongly condemn that teaching as well because we firmly believe That, yes, you and I, even though we are baptized Christians, are still sinners. We still need the daily confession absolution that we have in the Lord's Prayer. Because, after all, Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer first to his apostles. And in there, you have, forgive us our trespasses. So if there is no forgiveness for the Christian who falls after baptism, why does Jesus command us to pray, forgive us our trespasses? Novation would never answer that question. We move on into paragraphs 4 through 10. Before we defend our position, we must first say this. All good people of all situations, even the theological profession undoubtedly confessed that the teaching of repentance was very much confused before Luther's writings appeared. Theologians were never able to explain satisfactorily the numberless questions found in the books of the commentaries on the sentences. The people could not grasp the big picture, nor could they see what things were necessary for repentance, in which peace of conscience could be found. Let any one of the adversaries come forth and tell us when the forgiveness of sins takes place. O good God, there is such darkness! The adversaries do not know whether the forgiveness of sins happens in attrition or contrition. If forgiveness happens because of contrition, why do we need absolution? What does the power of the keys bring about if sins have been forgiven already? Here they work even harder and wickedly to divert from the power of the keys. Some imagine that guilt is not forgiven by the power of the keys, but that eternal punishments are changed into temporal ones. So the most beneficial power would be the service, not of life and the Spirit, but of only of God's anger and punishments. The more cautious imagine that sins are forgiven before the church and not before God by the power of the keys. This also is a deadly error. For the power of the keys does not comfort us before God, what will quiet the conscience? What follows is even more involved. The adversaries teach that we merit grace by contrition. In reference to this, if anyone should ask why Saul, Judas, and similar persons who were dreadfully contrite did not receive grace, here is the answer. We take it from faith and according to the gospel that Judas did not believe. He did not support himself by the gospel and Christ's promise. For faith shows the distinction between the contrition of Judas, Matthew 27, 3-5, and of Peter, Matthew 26:75) but the adversaries take their answer from the law that Judas did not love God, but feared the punishments. When will a terrified conscience be able to decide whether it fears God for his own sake or is fleeing from eternal punishments? The Psalms and the prophets describe these serious, true, and great terrors, which the truly converted experience. Such great emotions can be distinguished in letters and terms, but they are not separated in fact as these dear philosophers imagine. Here we appeal to the judgments of all good and wise people. Undoubtedly, they will confess that these discussions in the writings of the adversaries are very confused and intricate. Still, the most important subject is at stake, the chief topic of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. In the writings of the adversaries, this entire doctrine about these questions is full of errors and hypocrisy and clouds over Christ's benefit, the power of the keys, and the righteousness of faith a long paragraph to be able to get to some of the many things happening in the medieval church leading to the Reformation. So we go back to paragraphs 4 and 5, and the very great distinction that the doctrine of repentance was very much confused before Luther's writings, because everybody had their own idea about repentance. You had the argument over contrition versus attrition whether you are saved because you are contrite and you are very emphatically sorry for your sins or attrition that you are just sorry for being caught. They would say that would be the difference between people, but honestly, that's not the case because as Melanchthon says, When will a terrified conscience be able to decide whether it fears God for his own sake or is fleeing from eternal punishment? How do you know when you are sorry for something, especially before God, that you're doing it because you fear God or because you fear his wrath? Again, using the same word fear that are meant in two different things in that question but using the same definition. It is not the reverent fear of God that they want. They want the servile fear of being on the wrong side of God. Jonathan Edwards centers in the hands of an angry God type God here in fear. And then you have one of the worst things, I believe, that happened in the medieval church. You had Peter Lombard. A monk in the, I believe, 13th century that wrote a book on the sentences. Basically just collections of teachings and sayings from previous popes and councils and all these teachers. That then there were dozens and dozens of commentaries built on. And every last one of them just muddied the water even more as to what repentance actually means what justification actually means, because we've heard about the sentences from Article 4 and 5 of the Apology, and this so this is not anything new. But again, this is the problem with the confusion that was going on in the medieval church. This is what happens when you take away from the Bible and its teaching and its inerrancy, its without fault and error, and go, well, this is what makes sense to me. Because what makes sense to you may not make sense to me, which is why we have so many denominations in the world today, which is why even among Lutherans, we can't all agree with each other, even though we say we subscribe to the same book of confessions. All right, the other question in this is from paragraph 7. How can the priest... When giving, when we're hearing confession, be able to change eternal punishments into temporal punishments, but they can't remove the guilt of your sins. They can't make you right with God, but they can take God's eternal punishments and move them into this life. That makes no sense. But then again, when we get into The whole topic of indulgences in the early 16th century, there is basically no rules. It's just you do what you want and you hope that at the end that you're not going to be on the wrong side of it. And I've heard this many, many times from many people, especially in ELCA circles, that, well, just let do whatever and let God sorted out at the end it's like yeah there's no comfort in that idea because if you go and do whatever you want now and it ends up being wrong do you really want then where you have no choice no chance to repent to be the final thing and you end up in hell because well i was doing what i thought was right and end up being wrong There's no comfort there, just like there was no comfort in the fact that, oh, well, we'll take away some of the years in purgatory or possibility of hell. And we'll just make you say the Our Father a dozen times and a couple of dozen Hail Marys in between and everything else that goes along in the rosary. It's like, how does that work? I mean, that's not biblical. It's not even logical. But. Again, like I said, this everything just muddied the waters as to what repentance actually is, which is why we have such a long and difficult subject with justification and repentance and why Melanchthon has to go to such lengths to discuss this. All right, we move on into paragraphs 11 through 16. These things happen in the first act of this play. What about confession? What a work there is in the endless listing of sins. Nevertheless, this is in great part devoted to sins against human traditions. So that good minds may be more tortured by this, the adversaries falsely assert that this listing of sins is of divine right. They demand this listing under the claim of divine right. In the meantime, they speak coldly about absolution, which is truly of divine right. They falsely assert that the sacrament itself bestows grace by the mere performance of one act, ex opere operato again, without a good disposition on the part of the one using it. They do not mention faith grasping the absolution and comforting the conscience. This is truly what is generally called departing before the mysteries. The third act of this play, concerning satisfactions, remains. It contains the most confused discussions. The adversaries imagine that eternal punishments are switched to the punishments of purgatory and teach that a part of them is forgiven by the power of the keys and that a part is to be redeemed by means of satisfactions. Further, they add that satisfaction should be extraordinary works. They make these consist of most foolish observances, such as pilgrimages, rosaries, or similar observances that do not have God's command. Then, just as they redeem purgatory by means of satisfactions, so a scheme was created for redeeming satisfactions, which was most abundant in revenue. They sell indulgences, which they interpret as the pardon of satisfactions. This revenue is not only from the living, but which is more plentiful from the dead. Nor do they redeem the satisfactions of the dead only by indulgences, but also by the sacrifice of the mass. In a word, the topic of satisfactions is infinite. The doctrine of the righteousness of faith in Christ and the benefit of Christ lies buried among these scandals for which we cannot list everything and doctrines of devils. Therefore, all good people understand that the doctrine of the learned persons and canon lawyers about repentance has been criticized for a useful and godly purpose. For the following teachings are clearly false and foreign not only to Holy Scripture but also to the Church Fathers. And we'll get to those in a minute. But I want to point out Melanchthon's statement here, the Roman teaching on satisfactions is, in a word, infinite. Because there is no set guideline as to, okay, you committed this sin, so this is the satisfaction that you need. No, it's by individual priests are able to determine what you need to do which then makes it to where you want to make sure you go to confession when there are certain priests that are that are a little more lenient on there that don't make you go to rome for a pilgrimage to be in a mass with the pope but will make you say a dozen our fathers or make you sweep the steps of the monastery or whatever you know people will try to go to the ones that will make sure that they have the least amount of work they have to do to work off their sins. Why? That's human nature. That is the fig leaves that Adam and Eve used to try to cover themselves when they needed animal skins instead. All right, so we're going to get back to this last part of 16 and then go through paragraph 27. Now, if you... Turn away from this for a minute and you start hearing, wait, that doesn't sound right. There are 11 topics here that we false, that we accuse and decry as being false and untrue. So do not get the idea that I'm trying to say any of these are right. We are saying that these are wrong. For the following teachings are clearly false and foreign, not only to Holy Scripture, but also to the church fathers. One. Through good works, apart from grace, we merit grace from the divine covenant. 2. We merit grace by attrition. 3. Merely hating the crime is enough for blotting out of sin. 4. We obtain forgiveness of sins because of contrition and not by faith in Christ. 5. The power of the keys provides the forgiveness of sins before the church, but not before God. 6. Sins are not forgiven before God by the power of the keys. Rather, the power of the keys has been set up to transfer eternal punishments to temporal, to put certain satisfactions upon consciences, to set up new acts of worship, and to put consciences in debt to such satisfactions and acts of worship. 7. The listing of offenses and confession as taught by the adversaries is necessary according to divine right. 8. Canonical satisfactions are necessary for redeeming the punishment of purgatory, or they benefit as a compensation for blotting our guilt. This is how uninformed persons understand it. 9. Without a good disposition on the part of the one using it, that is, without faith in Christ, the reception of the sacrament of repentance by the outward act obtains grace. 10. Our souls are freed from purgatory through indulgences by the power of the keys. And eleven, in the reservation of cases, not only canonical punishment, but also the guilt should be reserved for one who is truly converted. All right, this long listing of things that we definitely say are false to it. Just wanting to point out a couple of them again. That through good works we receive grace. No, that's not the case. By merely being worried about being punished, we merit forgiveness. No, definitely not. Merely hating the crime. Nope not a method of forgiving sins. Uh, The power of the keys gives you forgiveness from the church, but not from God. That puts the church ahead of God and who's in authority over the priest and who sends the priest out there. Uh, the listing of offenses. Now, this we have over and over again that we talk about. We do not have to list every single sin that we have committed in order to be forgiven because we can't remember every sin. So we have the blanket confession in the Lord's Prayer Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We have the blanket confession in the Preparatory rite for the divine service where we say, you know, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess all my sins, whether I know them or not, because I can't know all of them. Because there are some that I didn't realize I was doing or I didn't realize was a sin at the moment. So the listing of sins being a requirement, no, that is not it. And then my favorite one, ex opere operato. That just by doing the work of confession, just by going into the confessional and saying the words, Father, forgive me for I have sinned, gives you forgiveness just by doing it, whether you are actually repentant or not. Too many people try that route and too many people find themselves truly, truly out on a limb. And that is not what I want for you. I want you to be firmly convinced that through repentance, you do receive the forgiveness of sins. And it's not because, well, I feel more contrite. It's because God has said that he wants to forgive. Yes, and he wants you to be contrite. But it's not your contrition that forgives your sins. It's the faith that holds on to the promise of the forgiveness. That's is what gives you the forgiveness of sins. That is what calms your conscience. All right, that's it for this week. That is, what is forgiveness? From Article 12 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Next week, we get into the bigger discussion on what are the two parts, being contrition and faith, and how they connect to each other biblically, but also how the adversaries had torn them apart and thrown away, depending on their desire, either one or both. So be here next week for that in the confessional corner. Be here Thursdays for the digging deeper into the Psalms as we get into the meaty Psalms in the late 40s and 50s that are really good coming up very soon. So until then, this is Pastor Dugman, wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.